Thought Leadership Studio. You're listening to Thought Leadership Studio, the podcast that helps you master high-level positive mass influence to create distinctive business niches, captivate an audience, grow your following, and change the game by changing the frame with strategic thought leadership. Thought Leadership Studio. So welcome back to Thought Leadership Studio. I'm your host, Chris McNeil. I'm a strategic thought leadership coach and consultant, digital marketer as well. And today we have a fantastic guest in the form of Skip Bowman, author of the upcoming book, From Safe to Great. He's an author, consultant, and keynote speaker who focuses on how to transform with a growth mindset and psychological safety. What this episode will do for you is help you learn how psychological safety is a prerequisite for a growth mindset, especially in the corporate world, but elsewhere as well. Help you gain insight and how to create psychological safety to facilitate a growth mindset from author and consultant Skip Bowman. Help you learn what hippos, clams, and snails are in a leadership context. And it'll help you discover how a doctor operated on the wrong side of the brain and how to avoid similar mishaps. Now, even if you're not in the C-suite in the corporate world, I think this interview has a lot of relevance for anyone who'd be interested in a podcast like this that focuses on positive mass influence. I'll tell you a little bit about Skip. He's an author, consultant, keynote speaker. He focuses on how to transform organizations with a growth mindset and psychological safety. Now, if you're not working within a large organization, just translate that to your audience. He's Australian-born and Europe-based. He's worked with global organizations for over 25 years, developing unique programs and approaches for his clients. People first is his mantra for success in business, leadership, and organizational change. Now, only when people feel valued and respected can you fully realize the potential of a purpose-based organization. After studying finance in Australia, Skip went on to attain his MA in psychology and languages in Copenhagen. He has a master's in organizational psychology, and he's completed additional training in cross-cultural management, group dynamics, coaching, and cultural change. His approach to coaching and consulting is both inspirational and challenging. And Skip argues that we need principles for leading and organizing that are effective morally right and save the planet he's the author of the upcoming book safe to great to be published in september 23 and if you're listening on an app definitely check out the episode page on thoughtleadershipstudio.com it's linked to in the episode description because we'll have links not only to pre-order skip's upcoming book but also to connect with him on linkedin and follow his insights on his blog so without further ado, let's jump right into the interview with Skip. So I'm your host, Chris McNeil with Thought Leadership Studio, and I'm sitting here across the globe with Skip Bowman, author of the upcoming book, Safe to Great. Um, I'm learning a visionary about 
how organizations can become more responsible to social and environmental needs. And there's this new contract. Um, glad to have you here, Skip, or there. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate uh, the opportunity. Excited to, to talk about these issues. They're really important. So uh, why don't we start with uh, just a 500 meters view of how you ended up where you are and writing the book, creating a vision, doing the work you do and consulting, coaching and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I'm a practitioner, organization development, leadership development, practitioner, psychologist and have worked in the field for a long time. And I've always felt an, a, a sort of like a, a burning desire to to sort of take the concepts that I've developed over the years and sort of bring them together, integrate them better. Um, and and it is about eight years ago now that I sort of bumped into growth mindset and psychological safety a little bit at the same time. And, you know, they speak to us for different kinds of reasons, but they, they, they've really stuck in the way that we look at leadership currently and into the future for some different reasons. But I think it's uh, they, they were compelling and it made me sort of come up with that idea around sort of reinventing, you know, Jim Collins' famous book, you know, Good to Great. Could we have a book called Safe to Great? Because I think fundamentally the workplace is less safe than it ever has been, primarily because the changes that are happening, you know, in the economy, in the labour market, in the, in the contract, the, the re relationship between organisations and employees is really changing. So I feel that safety and that, that wonderful book by Amy Edmondson really speaks to us at different kinds of levels. It's about team safety, but I think there's something bigger than that about that feeling safe enough to take risks, safe enough to grow, safe enough to learn. And that's what I put into a concept, done a lot of research around that so I can measure it in leaders and organisations, put it into a book and, and want to really try to shift the, the dial on what, what we might call a new psychology of leadership about what, how can we lead into the future of work, not, you know, what, what has been the case for the last 50 years. Let's look into the future and, and, and AI and the green transformation are going to change everything. They're huge game changers. So I think it's relevant to, to ask that question. What does leadership, should leadership look like for not just success, but for sustainable, meaningful, good change? And a couple of touch points I'm getting from this are psychological safety and a growth mindset. And how do you, how do you see the relationship between those? Well, I think they, they're lacking something with, if you don't have them together, you're missing something about how things at work function, right? If we just take psychological safety, it's a really cool idea, but it's not the goal itself that people feel safe. I mean, that's, that would not necessarily lead to innovation and growth and, you know, great customer service, whatever we're looking for, because it's like a foundation. When we have it, we feel able to speak up, to take risks, to share important ideas. So when we put growth mindset on top, we kind of get that piece. We get that ambition, that desire, that, that wanting to transform ourselves and our team. So when we combine them together, we get something I think meaningful. I think growth mindset without psychological safety is missing something in the sense that Dweck's book, Cal Dweck's book about mindset is very famous because of Satya Nadella, but it lacks a, a sort of a theory about what happens at work because our performance is so fundamentally impacted by our leader and by our peers and colleagues. And that's what psychological safety is about. So if we bring that together, we start to understand that performance, excellence, greatness is a relational sport. It's a team sport. 
So we need a theory like growth mindset, but we need that relational concept of psychological safety to make it really work. And that's what I've put together. Would it, would it be fair to say and, and look at psychological safety as maybe an incubator setting and the growth mindset is the egg that we're trying to nurture within that environment? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair enough. I mean, yes, it's the only thing that is that I always get worried about psychological safety is something like Fluffy and, and like an emu or an ostrich sitting on an egg or something like that, <laughs> keeping it warm and protecting it. Or perhaps a penguin, because then it's a man doing it, which is always sort of a slightly, slightly uh, interesting twist on things. But, but um, I think you're right. The problem, though, is that we conceptualize. If you're talking about the people who really need to understand psychological safety, aren't the nice people in a workplace? They're the people who are actually quite tough, demanding, not very friendly, perhaps a bit antisocial, a bit bossy. Right? They're uh-huh. the people who need to understand psychological safety. But if I say to them, it's like nurturing an egg, they're going to go, nah, I'm not into nurturing eggs, right? I'm into breaking them. Yeah. Breaking eggs. Yeah. And, that, and maybe that's a potential perception of values conflict, of mental yeah. toughness. And I've got to be mentally tough and handle any challenge. But then there's this, well, tell me what does psychological safety mean to you and also for our listeners who may not be as familiar with the term or maybe just need a better definition of it. What Amy Edmondson was, was interested in was if you take surgical units, you're like a doctor operating on a patient, what we want for that to be successful is a, 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 a relationship, a, a bit of teamwork between the people in the surgery who are are willing to help each other do a great job, right? Mm -hmm. What she found out is that certain relationships between the doctor and the nurses or the anesthesiast or whatever influence the success of the operation greatly, right? That's really what she found out. And she called that relationship psychological safety. So when there was psychological safety, surgical staff felt enabled uh, had the mandate to challenge the surgeon when he or she was about to do something really bad. Classic example from the power of habit is uh, an old, an eighty-year-old patient with a hematoma on the left-hand side of the of the brain. The nurse keeps saying to the doctor, "Are you sure who's about to operate on the right-hand side of the brain? Are you sure we're operating on the right the right side of the the brain here?" And and he says, "No, no, it's fine." And she said, "Shouldn't we just check the documentation and the and stuff?" No, no, it's fine. I've got it under control. And he opens up on the on the wrong side of the skull. And of course, they don't find the hematoma they're looking for. They find nothing. So he has to close it up. Opens up on the other side. And because of the nature of the complications of that, the eighty-year-old patient dies. Yeah, not, not good. And so psychological safety is that we don't have that outcome. <laughs> so, sure. And so it really matters. And, and that can matter in lots of contexts that your listeners are concerned about. There's a lot of things that work safely, work well, work profitably. When in a team, we speak up about things that are going wrong, maybe not working, but also ideas, you know, sharing hey i went to a customer today and they they told me this and i don't know whether it's true but should we think about it should we talk about it so people often think that psychological safety is the fear of making mistakes that's not the right interpretation it's about the fear of talking about mistakes 
Because as Amy Edmondson makes the point, we're making mistakes and we're missing opportunities every day. It's the fact that we either we talk about it or we don't. If we talk about the missed opportunities and the, the mistakes, then we have psychological safety. If we don't, then we don't have it. We have what I would call the conspiracy of silence, right? So one thing I'm getting from this, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that a lack of psychological safety might be connected to strong command and control management, where the top makes That's, all the decisions and the workers just yeah. follow that. Yeah, I mean that's what that's what my research plays out. Um, that in reality, uh, hierarchy, status differences, um, are your biggest challenge here. Now, it may be control. Um, it can be if you take uh, Sachin Adela's work. He he came up with the idea that we need to move from being know-it-alls to learn-it-alls, right? So he was concerned about knowledge as status, mm-hmm. and by eliminating status in terms of knowledge or any other forms of states, any other forms of hierarchy, whether it be about knowledge or whether it be about power, these things matter. So we're back to a very old idea that flat teams, flat organizations tend to have higher levels of psychological safety. So your point is absolutely right. And my research plays that out. If you have leaders that are controlling, coercive in, in approach, um, we get you know negative, quite strong negative correlations to psychological safety. But we also find a similar quality in what we call these know-it-all, or what I call critical skeptical leaders, similar problem, but just even bigger. In other words, know-it-all leaders are, the, in fact, the worst type when it comes to how they negatively influence psychological safety in organizations. That's really fascinating. Uh, and uh, know-it-all versus learn-it-all. It, it um, reminds me of some conversations I've had with guests and otherwise about applying systems thinking in a service business, where you, where you start to become aware of the command and control hierarchy actually gets in the way of providing the best possible service, which comes more from the people who actually are providing the service, those who have the, that transaction with the customer being able to be flexible and do what's right for the customer rather than conform to a standard that may not fit this particular case. Yeah, that's certainly what 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 research into customer service shows is high levels of 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 you know autonomy, bounded autonomy, as they would probably call it. You know, whether it be at Disney or whether it be Southwest Airlines, just to use maybe some familiar examples, where we see that we see um, great customer outcomes. Right. I mean, they're bounded in the sense that tends to be processes and and sort of systems that, you know, it's not a question of saying you can do anything you want, but there's a whole sort of like a, a structure around the autonomy that we're giving people. Autonomy is the biggest thing. Now, when it comes to growth mindset and psychological safety, autonomy is the whole name of the game. And that's why in my book, I talk about what's called the commitment premium. Uh-huh. It's when we, when we move away from control as our focus, and move towards commitment, the big shift here is what we call um, enabling autonomy. Um, And that's really that sort of links to all sorts of theories around self-determination, et cetera. But autonomy enhancing leadership leads to higher commitment and leads to psychological safety and growth. And that's what that's what the book essentially sort of argues around. And it's not where the book does. I mean, that's the research. And mm-hmm. all people first researchers pretty much say exactly the same. And that's what the social psychological research has shown. But 
we have to understand that control is more common in organizations primarily because it's, if you like, the default way that we promote, support, develop leaders. Like right now, when you see challenges with inflation and pressure on organization for expenses, boards are expecting CEOs to look tough, to make tough decisions, to look controlling. Why? Because when you're facing uncertainty, you replace logic or data with the look and feel of being in control. Uh-huh. So you see a lot of this you know, game playing from a very senior leaders and not you know, leaders throughout organizations, a response to uncertainty is to look tough and in control. So many of these decisions, perhaps sacking 10,000 people, as we saw from some of these big IT companies, had a lot more to do with looking like you've got it under control rather than actually having it under control. Well, that makes sense how that could block essential learning. Yeah, it's a pantomime of power, I call it. You know, it's 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 basically a dance that we play, but it's it's true psychologically. And if you look at say Jeffrey Pfeffer's book around the seven rules of power, you know, we know so psychologically that that humans respond to to powerful moves, leaders that show power, particularly when there's a high degree of uncertainty. And In other words, we tend to be drawn to narcissists when there's a, level, a higher level of uncertainty. Interesting. And I know there's probably some listeners thinking, well, how does this apply to me? And if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're the leader or aiming to be the leader of an audience, even if not a large organization. And I think a lot of these principles are very powerful for leading an online audience to a particular point of view where leaders could stand to be open and more learning and probably have more empathy and engagement from their audience, just like a CEO of a company would have as well. So I think this applies to anyone in, in large scale influence. Uh, what's the path to change? What have, what have you learned from your work that would be helpful to all of us? And how, when you recognize this in yourself, perhaps, or within an organization you're involved with, I know we have consultants who are also um, listeners who may be doing change work within organizations and could perhaps diagnose the situation of too much command and control, perhaps creating too little psychological safety, impeding growth. How do you how do you bring about change within an organization and within yourself when you recognize that? And how would you recognize it? You're going to have to map it. Uh, I, I don't think anyone serious working in this field would 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 suggest that people can sort of come upon this idea easily without some form of external feedback and support. Uh, it's a bit tricky today because there's an awful lot of HR practices that is, you know, basically Kool-Aid, you know, that was, let's just keep everyone happy and things will be fine, but you're really not going to get sure. anywhere and, and unless you sort of take a critical look at, at how we're currently behaving and, and be willing to embrace that things aren't as pretty as we'd like them to be. And since most organizations are pretty focused on making everything look pretty pretty, it's not uh, it's not easy to reach that. But there are tools, uh, I have some, and there are other organizations that do that enable people to get that picture. The most important thing is there is no one recipe. We know the pathway forward, but we first have to find out where you are. Now, there are leaders that are going to be very controlling competitive. I call them hippos, the most dangerous animal in Africa, because when they poop, they throw, throw it around with their tail. Oh. Uh, that's why I'm wearing the badge. No hippos aren't. <laughs> um, 
then you're going to have critical skeptical leaders that are clams, uh, which have very sort of like know-it-alls, perhaps not very social, very smart, very arrogant, negative, pessimistic. They have a different path forward. And then we have snails, which are complying complacent leaders. And they have a different recipe. And, and the point being about that is that far too often leadership models are sort of like one way, right? And I don't think that helps people because in principle, let's let's just take servant-based leadership. It's a great idea, but doesn't apply to a lot of people because a lot of leaders already are serving. Sure. So the it's it speaks to a controlling competitive type of leader, a hippo. Uh, much like the sort of humility vulnerability school would suggest, right? And it's true that people who are very ego-driven need to develop, you know, more empathy, be more humble, be more, you know, less status-driven, et cetera. But that's not the advice you need to give to at least 30 40% of leaders who aren't struggling with that. They are actually struggling with the opposite, which is they're struggling to be assertive, to hold people accountable, to speak about their vision and set direction firmly. Um, so there's so much hype and talk about things. I feel you've got to have an approach which enables us to say, okay, what kind of pathway do you need to, to tread to move in the direction of higher commitment? In other words, autonomy enhancing, growth mindset, I would call it. And once we've determined that, I have to sort of start um, sort of what I would call tipping the, the myths or the sacred cows that you have about yourself. Because unfortunately, all behavior is tied into, you know, mental models, beliefs, and assumptions. And we're going to have to challenge stuff mm -hmm. because that shapes your perception. So controlling leaders feel that the fact that their teams aren't performing has got nothing to do with them, but has something to do with the competency or attitude of the employees. The reality isn't, is that's not very true or very often true. Sure. It's simply because employees learn to cope with or resist powerful leaders so what you're seeing is not their competency or confidence sort of you know naturally speaking what you're seeing is how it has been shaped by the fact that you've been bossing them around the more you boss people around the less confident and competent they're going to look well people learn to apply their ingenuity to surviving within a toxic yes. system yeah, survive. Yeah, they as as Bob Sutton says in his books, which are amazingly influential on me, which is you know the no asshole rule, and um, is is exactly that is surviving. You know, organizations where we have too much power concentrated in too many people, and this is not the healthy way forward. But unfortunately, in uncertain times where there's a lot of change coming from the outside of the organization you know you're going to see leaders grabbing onto that powerful controlling way of leading and that actually makes things worse rather than improves things but it looks good so you're talking about challenging the beliefs that underpin this controlling leadership that, that inhibits the psychological safety that's obviously a part of the creating the environment that enables the growth and that's that's challenging I and mean, people tend to identify with their beliefs how do you how do you respectfully challenge these types of leaders beliefs in the way they can accept and change well it's typically by turning things around a little bit in the sense and say well how do you respond to being told what to do it's a very simple question sure i mean i have three children under the age of three and a half and i can reassure you that when dad is bossy 
I just get three-year-olds resisting me. So if they, if a three and a half year old, if a three and a half year old pokes pokes her tongue out and says, "Dad, go stuff it," that you think I'm not eating nicely. What do you think? What do you think an adult's going to do when you tell? I mean, seriously, kids have it from the age of I don't know when. I've got like two twins of eighteen months. They are capable of resistance. No, uh, <laughs> it's as simple as that. It doesn't go away because we send them to school and send sure. them to college. It doesn't go away. Do you see uh, maybe cultural norms about um, connecting strength with authoritarianism underlying some of that? Well, that's right. I mean, we have a programming, um, which is that, as, as I said before, uncertainty means that we're drawn to authoritarian, narcissistic leaders. That we know, right? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. The, the, the success of more moderate democracies has been to get people to not follow their genetic programming. Civilization is based on the fact that we don't do what our genes tell us. Sure. <laughs> we do, it's we, because we have learned by our culture, to, we've learned that if we follow certain, you know, genetically drives that we have, it leads to bad outcomes. Now, it started with the Bible and the Ten Commandments, and then it ended up in things like the U.S. Constitution, and it ended up in, you know, the, the U.N. and other things that are cultural ways of saying, hey, I'd like to kill you, but that's a really bad idea. Sure. So rising above animal instincts is... Uh... yes. Maybe that that's can be the, a challenge, you know? Yeah, because just because it feels right doesn't mean it is right. So if you're so tough, and, and that, are you tough enough to overcome your natural instincts and not be tough? Yes. Better not to be. Yeah, and that's why I don't use the word vulnerability and humility because that just sounds hopeless. To somebody who's trying to be tough, I'd say I prefer your argument, which is if you really are that tough, show me your ability to to disrupt a habit, which is to be the person who talks the most and has the last say on everything. Let's try that, Mr. Tough Guy. Yeah. And so so creating this environment. Now, when you work with organizations, since I know some listeners are going to relate to, to the role, what's, how do you typically engage them? Are you typically hired by the, the C-suite and it's a top-down, we're going to work on organizational change? Uh, or are there other ways? And and how do you go about initiating change within an organization as an outside consultant or coach? It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous job. Yeah. Uh, that's it, that's it, why it, I'm it, asking. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I wish it was as safe as a lion tamer, but it's a bit more like taming crocodiles. Excellent. Um and to be honest, I mean, I was on a call today with a similar thing, you know, people coming and saying, you know, Skip, could you talk to us about psychological safety? We've done a survey internally and there's a bit more fear than we're comfortable with. And people are saying that it's hard to speak up. It's hard to change things. They don't really believe anything will change. And you listen to that and go like, yeah, I, I've, I hear that a lot of places. And then I'll say, you know, what's the appetite of the C-suite to do anything about this? And is there any ownership of these issues? And they say, well, we haven't quite got there yet. And okay, well, you know, that, that is going to be an issue. As soon as I step in there, um, you know, I'm going to bring an, a, a, a critical approach, right? Um, which is not always what people want. A lot of HR will run, go running away from me and say, I'm not going to talk to Skip because he's going to say, he's going to say something close to the truth, right? 
I see my job as a little bit more like, you know, a, a court jester. My job is to speak the truth. If I can make them laugh, it helps. Maybe sing a song um, to make it a little bit less painful. But at the end of the day, what we see in organizations that that have this growth mindset quality is we have leaders that that simply know that they have to surround themselves with people who will challenge their status and and be willing to speak the truth. And that's just not as usual as you might think. And there can be people also around CEOs and other senior people that try to protect them from that, you know. Right. You know, they're so busy, they're doing so many important things, you can't tell them that, and it'll just make things difficult. And I'm saying, well, it might make things difficult, but you can't, on the one hand, say that you want a growth organization or psychological safety, and at the other hand, be that hypocritical. You know, in other words, be behaving in a way that fundamentally contradicts the idea. Yeah. You get, I mean, I mean, you'd be better not to say anything about psychological safety. I'd actually prefer you to say, hey, you know, I'm a prehistoric monster when it comes to leadership. You know, I'm Godzilla. That's it. Right. Rather than say, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm actually really, really sweet and nice. I mean, come on, dude. That's, that's the worst <laughs> thing possible. It's like I command you under penalty of death to follow this program of creating more psychological safety. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I, there's, so, there's always going to be hypocrisy in organizations because speaking the truth to, to bosses is harder than bosses think. And it's not always, it's not always because of the individual. Organizations create uh, these expectations. In other words, sure. a negative expectation of, of speaking up. Yeah, well, I mean, it's systemic and obviously yep. to a certain degree. And that's, uh, that's my curiosity because it is such a challenge when you're expected to work within the mental models of leadership and it's the mental models of leadership that are the problem. Yeah. And uh, how do you get people to respectfully challenge that? I guess one way is, is what I'm hearing is that it's kind of a prerequisite. You're not going to engage if they're not willing to put the right people with the right attitude at the top willing to support that. Or do you take that on or do you take it and take it on as a challenge to get them to that place by working with them i've tried both uh perhaps and doing both right now i think at times when you've been an organizational transformation person like myself you have to accept that sometimes just supporting some some great leaders that are working within a fairly toxic organization and giving them confidence to stay the path is okay if we don't win the, you know, everyone over, you know, I you have to deal with that and to say that's, you know, it's always a choice. You can't, I mean, I'm not going to choose a controlling method to to deploy uh, an idea that's meant to be autonomy enhancing. So I have to give people the choice, but I'm going to be robust in making it clear that I'm going to whisper loudly to authorities to suggest that it's not as, I mean, you are good, but to think that you don't have any blind spots or dark sides or something like that, that's just being ignorant or stupid or one of the two. Oh, yeah. Um, and and, and sometimes sometimes they can, there are leaders that will latch onto that and appreciate that that this is a step up, like you were saying, you know, wow, I'm 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 challenged here to step up in a way that I hadn't been expected, you know, and that can work. But on others, it can't. They, they'd prefer to have somebody who's whispering softly in their ear that they're amazing, just continue, you know, business as usual. And 
So I, I feel you can can make progress with this. Um, you need a broad set of stakeholders, but I don't get too caught up in the people who resist too early. I don't worry about them. What I'm interested in is finding that coalition of first movers um, and and working with them and trying to to change the make sure that they are seen as valuable members of the organizational community and and hopefully bring about social change by focusing on, you know, socially reinforcing people who embrace these ideas, more autonomy enhancing, more growth mindset, more psychological safety, really doing what we can to encourage them to step up, to be more visible, to be more um, the people we want to copy rather than the, the crocodiles. How do you set up ex success experiences in the change process? And, and just stepping into the devil's advocate role a little bit, if I was in an organization and we started to recognize that we could unleash more productivity, more sales by our people being less inhibited, feeling safer, being have, releasing all this energy to focus on growth as, instead of surviving within a toxic system, so to speak. Uh, how, would, how would we know it's working? And by when should we look for these signs to know that it's working so that we can feel it's been a success and see the success? I think visioning what success looks like is an important part of that journey. Um, and, and as you're right, because you're in a mental model, you're tending to see things that confirm your existing mental model. That's quite tricky to, to, to break down. I think my experience, though, is that what we need to look for is to perhaps find the kind of observers people who could provide feedback who may not who who have a, enough of that credibility enough of that candid honesty to be the kind of people to provide feedback to a leader and say look you know it really did work better that you didn't attend that meeting or you didn't say as much as you usually did if it's somebody weak in that group it won't matter and i don't mean to be discriminatory but unfortunately in workplaces there is a hierarchy about who's strong and who's weak who's smart and who isn't so we're going to need somebody in the middle of that who's considered credible and, and important, but who's also willing to say, look, it, it did work better that you didn't say as much or you asked more questions, right? It, it, and that's where it goes because otherwise we won't get the feedback. It has to be a self-reinforcing process like this, what you're, which you're indicating. So we have to find ways to get those observations, that feedback, around the new behaviors the hard part with a lot of leaders though is that it's what we're trying to work with is what we call microaggression and microaggression is below the consciousness well you know below the awareness of most leaders um and often it's got to do with emotionality most dominating controlling leaders are fairly temperamental um have very strong emotionality or energy um, and and are, and are surprised by the fact that that overwhelms and silences people quite without them really doing anything at all. And this is even before we get to things like groupthink, like what they discovered with you know John F. Kennedy, you know back in the in the Cuban uh, the Bay of Pigs scenario. Right. But essentially, emotionality, microaggression, and microexcluding behaviours are very prevalent in leaders of this type. And and I have to help them a lot on that level because they're never used to the, it's not. I mean, some leaders are so obviously um, toxic. It's it's pretty simple. How about you just don't say that you think people are really stupid? Maybe you don't shouldn't say that. 
right? But then you can have a lot of categories of leaders who don't do it that way. They're going to roll their eyes or use their telephone when the person who's talking with a different idea is talking. Now, it's pretty much the same impact. One is what we call a microaggression and one is a you know, an obvious aggression. Sure. But they're both potentially just as impactful in a team. And so getting people who can observe some of that, perhaps ghosting that a little bit can help, particularly with these very senior people who are just unused to the kind of feedback. I mean, Bob Sutton talks about it, is what they call the the um, the the issue is, is that the more senior we become, the more we begin to operate with the belief that we are above the law or above the social rules that apply in a group. Sure. But at the same time, we are the behavior that we have is observed with much greater attention and uh, importance from the people that we lead. And this sort of like, you know, toxic tandem, as as Bob Sutton would call it, means that relatively small amounts of microaggression or even, you know, I did it once, but I think I got away with it, can have an enormous negative impact. One meeting can lead to six months of a project team not speaking the truth in front of a key steering committee member. I know that because I've been in an organization that, you know, made a huge error for 400 million US dollars, right? And they said, how did that happen? I only attended one meeting. I could see what was wrong because the CEO at the end of the table looked like Mount Vesuvius about to explode. Or I should say Mount St. Helens or something like that <laughs> from the US. Well, that experience speaks to the bottom line. $400 million, that gets just to pay 10% of what you save and that's a nice gig. Well, this is it. I mean, the funny thing was that I, I was... A lot of the stuff that we're working with here is not actually as hard as you might think. It's really weird because I, I was in that project organization for some time and I attended, I started attending some of the meetings, what we call ghosting, and it was just observing the meetings just to see what was going on. And one of the senior engineers said to me uh, a couple of weeks into the process, Skip, why don't you just attend every meeting? Because they're so much more um, effective when you're there. I mean, I did nothing. I was just sitting there, right? Hmm. So this comes to this important revelation is that most people know what treating other people with respect or what psychological safety looks like, right? It's, it's not as hard as you might think. We're not re we're not, I'm not teaching you something you didn't learn at school, like, you know, being curious and interested in others and waiting for somebody else to speak before you speak. I mean, this is not, this is not rocket science, dude. So you know what the right behaviors are. You just choose not to do it. Now, that's a very different conversation. So in reality, behaving in ways that lead to high performance, most people know what that looks like. It's a very small percentage of leaders who don't know what that looks like. And if they don't know what that looks like, I suddenly wonder, you know, what planet, what, you know, did, did you never get exposed to, you know, Boy Scout principles at some point in your life? <laughs> sure, yeah. That'd be well so if you're not... Yeah, and so if you've learned that or that's the way you want to behave, that's because you don't care or you think you're above it, which is, of course, what narcissists believe. That's that's how it goes. So I it's actually easier than you think. If we could get the right number of people, the, the people who have social influence, to start nudging more people in the direction of civility, of being interested in other people's opinions, being willing to embrace blindsides, negative information, in fact, encouraging it when somebody says something strange, unusual, 
contradictory to, to, to dive in and grab it? We know that's a good idea. Do I have to send you on a sensitivity program to understand that that's a, probably a pretty good idea to listen to somebody who's telling you that your product sucks and that if you continue doing this, the plane is going to crash? I mean, we're talking about- Do I really have to tell them? Yeah, well, we're talking about large organizations, but this has universal applicability. Yeah. I, I mean, even in, in, quote, influencer, unquote, with an audience, how in tune are you with the voices of your audience? Yeah. Are you speaking at them or for them or with them? Absolutely. And and there are multiple things happening every day where you're, you know, you might be choosing an emotional response and you're acting out, you're, you're being decisive, you're being impatient, you're jumping to conclusions, where in general being calmer, uh, being willing to make sure that you understand the situation well, that you hear the different perspectives, that you have the data in place. This doesn't take very long necessarily. And it's a hell of a lot more important than just jumping to conclusions and just because otherwise you look stupid, by the way, but nobody's ever going to tell you that, are they? Well, I think this is this is empowering and fascinating. And it seems like we could all learn from being more in tune with those around us who are there to support a vision that we're we're promoting and self-monitoring maybe and self-regulating so, a little better to notice how we're letting them express fully, supporting their expression, supporting their ideas. Uh, I think this is um, something anybody listening to this could benefit from learning more about, but I would be interested in hearing what they think. <laughs> Try to Sure. Can, can I just add the point about self-regulation? If you read, say, like a book like Daniel Goleman's book, Focus, he's a famous you know, author of around emotional intelligence is what we know. There's two things that fundamentally reduce our ability to self-monitor. In other words, to observe our behavior and to sort of either apologize and rectify it when we screw it up or just don't do it in the first place. <laughs> Both are pretty good options. And one of which is power. So if we give you just a little bit of power and if we give you a lot, you tend to stop self-monitoring, number one. Number two, if I overload you cognitively and emotionally, you're going to do the same. Interesting. So, so part of it is also setting up the environment to support it. Absolutely. It won't work without that. We, we've got almost everything we, you've said quite a few times today, we need a systemic approach or we need, you know, I'm, I'm representing that. And that's exactly what I'm saying. You cannot implement growth mindset or psychological safety without considering the ability, because it's something you do together, it simply doesn't make sense to sort of say, okay, you've got it um, and you need to have a little bit more of it. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it, it's meaningless if we don't in a meeting create it together. That's so, that's how it plays out. It's a dance. I think it's awesome. And and an interplay and, and there's yeah. two things I'm asking now. And one is, what is the first thing that someone listening to this podcast can do for themselves and for the organization to create more psychological safety for those around them, those they influence and in service of growth? And also, how can people reach you and get in line to get your book when it comes out in September? And, and learn more about you or maybe hire you for their organization? I think emotionality, I think it's something I've learned 
over the last 25 years of coaching leaders. I coached a lot of leaders over the years. And I'm realizing that, that, and this is a central part of the model that I have today, is, and this is a piece of advice, it's a tip, is to think about your emotional state prior to any meeting, any tone, telephone call, any virtual call. Um, ground yourself. Where am I emotionally? What's the right emotion stepping into this meeting? If you get that bit right, after the mind follows, we think based on how we feel. So, and because emotions are contagious in a way that's beyond consciousness or you know beyond awareness, if you bring the right energy to a meeting, people will start thinking along that way because of the emotional state. Get the emotional state wrong, we're going to start thinking the wrong way. So if you've got too much blaming going on, it's probably because you look pissed. Excuse the French. So that's what I'd be thinking about. So think about your emotional state and take 30 seconds prior to stepping into that meeting and think, okay, where do I need to be right now emotionally? And what kinds of words and stuff would I use to sort of set that scene and stay in that mode during a conversation, even if it's a negotiation or a very difficult conversation? If you want to find me, Skip Bowman. And if you type that in, you're either going to find a, a famous Navy admiral uh, or me. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I'm not the famous Navy Admiral. Um, my name's Skip Bowman. Um, I created a concept called Safe to Great, which I really fundamentally believe in. I want to make organizations safe for great work. You can find me with either of those titles and uh, very happy to, um, to share more ideas with you. I'd love to get some pre-orders of my book. Um, it's on Amazon. So if you type in Safe to Great, Skip Bowman, you'll find it on Amazon. I've got an offer for pre-orders of the book. I'd love to match the investments that you're making and double it in terms of services. So if, you, if you're willing to, to get those pre-orders, because I'm trying to beat the algorithm, uh, the way you beat the algorithm is uh, to get pre-orders on your book. So I am you know, crossing my hands like this and saying, if you could help me out, I'd really appreciate it. If you want to help me get that message out there, that's the best way to help. And I'm very happy to sort of respond in kind with you know webinars or coaching etc to, to support that to make that work so thank you so much for inviting me for the program today it was great it was great i appreciate it skip this has been uh motivating enlightening and uh um it's given me just that uh, extra awareness of state like you mentioned i think it's very powerful you're very welcome thank you my pleasure well thanks again for listening to thought leadership studio I'm your host, Chris McNeil. I'm a strategic thought leadership coach and consultant. And the episode page on thoughtleadershipstudio.com has resources like links to pre-order Skip's book, links to his social media, to his blog, as well as resources like the free marketer's guide to strategic thought leadership that can help you Start to organize the building blocks of your own strategic thought leadership to get more impact and traction with your audience. So check it out if you're listening on app. The link is in the episode description. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Thought Leadership Studio.